It is great to see you. Thanks for being here. If you're joining us online, we are especially glad to have you. I know this is a a tough time for everyone in a lot of different ways, but super thankful in, in whatever capacity you're able to be a part of what God is doing here at our church, whether that's meeting with us here in person or joining us online. Uh, super grateful. Next week, as you've heard, we'll be reopening kids ministry uh, and adding some other things, kind of a phase two of reopening. We're excited about that. Um, as we think about the songs we were singing together today, uh, there's this theme of like thankfulness for God's faithfulness. I don't know if you caught on to that, that theme this morning, but I was thinking about that and, and a conversation I had this week with a couple of other pastors from other churches. Uh, when, when we get together now as pastors, you know, how are things going for your church and what are y'all doing and how, how are things working there? And, and so for me, it's, when I get asked that question right now, it's difficult to answer because if I think of it from like a personal perspective, my answer is this was the hardest year of my entire life. Like hardest year of ministry, hardest year of my life. And many of you are like, yeah, like you're experiencing that in your workplace, in your life, in your family. Um, regardless of how COVID has impacted you, we've all been impacted in a very challenging way. Like the, 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 the frequency of high level weighty decisions we've had to make this year, right, is beyond any comparison that I've ever experienced. Now, that being said, from a corporate perspective, I couldn't be more thankful for God's faithfulness. Like despite all of that, despite how challenging it has been, like the Lord has done great things so far this year. And that's obvious in the number of baptisms we've had. Just last week was mentioning that we've had six kiddos baptized this year, not counting the adults, six kiddos, um, all of which were baptized by their dads. And, and the reason why that's significant is because that's hopefully a reflection of, of men stepping up and being spiritual leaders in their homes. Um, for years, decades now, when you survey the church, especially the American church, women, moms have had to take the lead and, and carry that spiritual weight and burden of, hey, let's pray, let's go to church, let's read the Bible. And I'm so thankful for the role that women play both in the biblical times, but in our world today. But men are finally stepping up to the plate and saying, yeah, I'll be involved. I, will, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'll step in and I'll lead. And it's been reflected, I think, even in the baptisms when dads are available to baptize their kiddos. And I just love that. It's a win, right? That's a win from our perspective. And all this has been happening, you know, with kids ministry shut down. Um, and then we look at the attendance, we look at giving, we look at what's happening with the new building. Like for a hundred more reasons, the Lord has been faithful to us. And so when people ask me, how's 2020 going for you? Personally, it's hard, but as a church, I couldn't be more thankful. And so I wanna just start with that today. Uh, we're gonna be in Romans chapter five today. Romans chapter five, which is an interesting place to turn when we're going through the gospel of John. So if you've been with us, you're like, wait a second, I thought we were in John eight. Why aren't we going to Romans 5? So I'm going to do some, take some time uh, to explain for you um, why we're doing that and the significance behind it. Now, today is going to be different from most other sermons, okay? And, and so I'm going to kind of explain why. So I hope today will be interesting for you. If you geek out on like history and facts and the behind the scenes information, today will be really interesting for you. For everybody else, I just hope today is helpful. I hope today helps you not only know what to do with hard, part, hard places in the Bible, um, but on a personal level, I hope it's helpful. I hope that you hear the Lord speak to you in a personal way. I hope that you experience his Holy Spirit working in you as we open the text together. So here it is. If you're reading from John chapter eight, which is what David just read from in a 
uh, reliable modern translation, more than likely those verses are going to be in brackets with a little subnote that says, these verses did not appear in the earliest manuscripts. Okay, and so that leads us then to ask, what in the world is going on with these particular Bible verses? Are they Bible verses at all, and why are they in here? So just a little bit of history to kind of help you understand. So the English translation of the Bible um, really began around 1516 with a guy named Erasmus. And so here's how that worked. Um, For hundreds of years, the Catholic Church had been using the Latin translation of the Bible, the Latin Vulgate. And over time, the translation had morphed. The wording had morphed, had been changed. So before we translated the Bible into English, rather than just taking the the most recent Latin version of the Bible and pulling it into English, a guy by the name of Erasmus said, you know what we need to have? We need to have reliable Greek manuscripts from which to translate into English. And then 10 years later, 1526, a guy named Tyndale uh, translates it into English, okay? And so that's kind of the history of how we got the English translation. But here's something that people don't always realize. At the time, the early 1500s, when the Bible was translated from Greek into English, the the, uh, translations they were pulling from are not as old as the ones we have available today. Since then, we have discovered and preserved older manuscripts, older versions of the Greek New Testament. And so what we've discovered in these older uh, copies of the Bible, now understand, we have over 5,800 manuscripts, either in whole or in part. So we're not talking about three or four documents. We're talking about over 5,800 copies of the Greek New Testament. What we've discovered is there are three places that the old manuscripts don't include that were there in the 1500s when the Bible was first translated into English. And so now, rather than just taking those pieces out, what modern day translations will do is put those in brackets and say, hey, be aware, these verses weren't in the old manuscripts. What other places in the Bible were like that? Well, I'll just give them to you. Uh, The end of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, which includes a resurrection appearance of Jesus, the Great Commission, a few other things noted there. Another place, interestingly enough, is in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verse 13, which is the last verse of the Lord's Prayer. And if you learn the Lord's Prayer in a more traditional church service, there is a phrase that you learn that went like this, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. See, you know it. Now, what we discovered is that's how we, a lot of, that's how the church in English learned the Lord's Prayer, but that last phrase wasn't in the original manuscripts. Now, here's the good news. The pieces that weren't there that are now included, that are in your brackets, don't change our doctrine at all. They're, right, they're they're incredibly consistent with the overall doctrine and story of the Bible, No facts are changed, no historical context has changed, and no doctrine has changed. But it leaves us with the question, should those verses be in there? And then what do you do with them? All right, so here's what we first do is the first question we ask when we find something like that in the Bible. We ask, is this consistent with the other teachings of the Bible? The second question is, as we think about the specific authors of the Bible, is this particular teaching consistent with the other teachings from this author? Right, because we need to know. Okay, so maybe this wasn't in John's original gospel, but maybe he wrote it later. Like maybe there was a time later where he was with the apostles and he's like, oh, I gotta tell you guys another story about what Jesus did. Like there was this woman caught in adultery and and the Pharisees came and Jesus is writing in the ground and the guy's like, you gotta write that down. And so maybe he wrote it later and then later it got 
put into the gospel at the particular time that it actually happened in the unfolding narrative. So we don't know the answers to those questions. So we simply wanna ask, is this teaching consistent with the rest of the Bible? And then is this consistent with what John would have taught as he introduces us to Jesus? And so what we're gonna do then, so what I do personally with these verses, whether it's Mark 16 or John 8 or Matthew 13, is I use them for supplementary texts. I would never go to one of these passages uh, to, to, to maybe develop an original doctrine, something new about God, right? So I use them then to support the teachings of the rest of the Bible. So what we're gonna do today is we're gonna go to Romans chapter five, last few verses of five, the first few verses of six, and we're gonna ask. So Paul's writing Romans. We're gonna ask the question, are these verses in John eight consistent with the teachings of Paul specifically as he talks about these same things. And then we'll look at the Gospel of John and just see, did John say anything else like this anywhere else in his Gospel that we know was included in the main? Like, does this sound like something John would say? And so that's our journey today. Like I said, I hope it's interesting, but more than anything, I hope it's helpful for you. So we're gonna start in Romans chapter five, uh, verse 18. The Apostle Paul writing this. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. Now, in context, Paul is using Adam and Jesus. Okay, those are the one, the one man references. So what Paul is saying is here is how sin entered the world through one man's disobedience. He was Adam. And he says that not only did sin enter the world through Adam, but the many were made sinners. Meaning what? Every following generation was born with a sin nature, right? Something broken within us morally, right? So it's not like every human being, right, either sinned or didn't sin. But what Paul is saying is no, once sin entered the world, and as a matter of fact, he's going to use the word, it reigned had this power over us. So the same way that sin entered the world through one man and the many were made sinners, there's another one man, he's Jesus, right? That grace and salvation has entered the world through this one man and the many were made righteous. So through Christ, whatever was done in Adam or through Adam has been undone in Christ. And that's his main point here. Now, we go back to John 8 and we say, well, what's going on uh, in this part of the gospel of John? So, Last week, we wrapped up chapter seven, okay? And, and what we saw in chapter seven is that this growing angst and hatred towards Jesus had, had now become a plan, a tangible plan. So Jesus is teaching in the temple there in Jerusalem, and the Pharisees dispatch the temple guards to come and arrest him at the end of chapter seven. And so they're in the back of the room listening to his teaching, and rather than arresting him, right, they're hearing what he's saying, and they're, they're moved. Like, this guy is a teacher of authority, and so they go back defying orders to the Pharisees who dispatched them and said, we didn't arrest him. Man, this guy, we've never heard anybody teach like this. And so then the Pharisees get all riled up, and whoever's speaking there on behalf of the Pharisees says to the soldiers, are you kidding me? Did he brainwash you too? And then he turns to the other Pharisees and like, like who else in the room has been brainwashed? Who else has been listening to his teachings? Of course, Nicodemus there at the end, he speaks up and says what? Hey, aren't, aren't men innocent until proven guilty? Aren't we called by the law of God to give people a fair trial? And then that's where chapter seven ends. 
So now chapter eight, with this narrative in the story, what happens is what was a plan to kill Jesus has now become a plot to trap him. So they were just trying to catch him in public in chapter seven. Now in chapter eight, they're setting Jesus up. And so to set him up, they come up with this plan. If we can find somebody and catch them in the act of, a, of sin, a sin that would require a death sentence, we'll take that person to Jesus and we'll ask him, what do you wanna do? And their hope is that, that either one or two things will happen because see, it's the law of Moses requires this person to be put to death. So if Jesus says, no, don't put him to death, now he's a heretic, right? Now he's defying the law of Moses so he can't be a godly man. However, if he says, you know what, you're right, and he kills the woman, puts her to death, now you see what's gonna happen with the crowd. They're gonna become disenchanted with this guy. This, this guy who we thought was so kind and compassionate and full of grace, now look at him, he condemned this woman to death. And so they, they think it's the perfect plan. They're gonna set Jesus up with this trap. And so these Pharisees, the same ones, and more than likely this is like the next day after the guards uh, return, Jesus draws away. The next morning he's in the temple, they set him up and they catch this woman in the act of adultery. Okay, they bring her before Jesus. Uh, there's a conversation that happens. There's some writing in the sand. We don't know what Jesus wrote. I think he probably wrote down the 10 commandments. Just going out on a limb, I'll tell you why I think that in a minute, but at any rate, he writes in the sand. And then he says, you know what? You're right, that's what the law of Moses says. This lady caught in adultery needs to be condemned to death. So I'll tell you what, he who has no sin in his life, you get to throw this, the first stone, ready, go. And then one by one, starting with the older Pharisees first, they drop their stones and go home. And then what does Jesus say to the woman? Lady, where are your accusers? Where are they at? She says, they're not here. There's nobody here. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go from now on and what? Sin no more. So now we go back to Romans chapter five and look at what comes next in verse 20. So Paul has already made the case that what was done through the one man, Adam, it's being undone through the one man, Christ, verse 20. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Just a little help here. What Paul is saying is that when we have the law, it increases our awareness of just how much of a lawbreaker we are, right? So you break the law, there's a sense of, I have broken God's law, but if you spell it out for me, now I'm just fully aware. So where the law has increased, so has my awareness of sin. But then he says this, where sin has increased, what else has increased? The grace has abounded all the more. And then he says something extremely helpful in 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so Paul's concept of sin is that when sin entered the world through the one man, it had this reigning power over our lives. And, and we bear evidence of that. Have you tried to quit sinning in your own strength and failed? This is yes. This is no, and this is what liars look like. Yes. Like really, right? There's been something in your life, a moral struggle that you have fought to try to change to no, to no avail, right? And so that's essentially what is being described here, that, that sin has a sense of, of authority and ruling power over us, so we need somebody to undo that ruling power. And what Paul's gonna argue is, listen, you're gonna have a Lord over your life. It's either gonna be sin or it's gonna be Christ. So you wanna see that, that those chains un locked, you want to see that, that sin cycle broken, you want to see power overcome, then what needs to happen is Jesus needs to be your Lord. 
your king, your ruler, your master. So then that leaves this question, well, if sin, where sin abounds or becomes more and more grievous, the grace of God abounds all the more, which means I can't out-sin God's grace. I can't sin in such a way that it would ever move beyond the scope of the power of God's ability to forgive me. Put it quite plainly, there is no sin beyond God's forgiveness. Okay? That's essentially what Paul's arguing. So then that would leave us, well then, I'm just gonna do whatever I want then, right? I'm just gonna go about, okay, fine, then that's awesome. I'll just, anytime I mess up, I'll say, hey Jesus, I'm sorry, would you forgive me of that? Would you take the dry erase board of my soul and just wipe it clean and then send me about my merry way so I can go do what I want, right? Well, so the very next chapter of Romans chapter six begins with that in mind as Paul writes this rhetorical question. Look at what he says. This is chapter six, verse one. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? What is he asking? He's saying, well, if that's true, sin abounds, then grace abounds all the more. Why don't we just go full throttle sin then? Right? Why don't we just go full blast, rebel against God, because as sin increases, what happens with grace? It increases. And if you have a responsible translation of the Bible, the next phrase has the explanation point at the end of it, even though that wasn't there in the original text. His response was what? By no means, which is Bible talk for, are you kidding me? That's not how it works, right? That's not how it works. And so we take a step back and we say, what is Paul getting at here and how does it relate to chapter eight? Well, the first thing is this, as Paul teaches that through one man, sin comes into the world and the many were made sinners, Jesus is really pointing that out with the Pharisees, isn't he? These men would have you believe that they were morally impeccable that they had no sin in their lives. And they prided themselves in this high level of morality. However, that's not consistent with the gospel that would say all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, even those super religious guys over there, right? Even those guys who would have you think that they have it together, they actually don't, which is where Jesus says what? Just read it again. They, verse seven, John eight, they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the stone at her. You see how Jesus is using that to, to show something about these guys? You're, you're right. She's condemned to death. She shouldn't have committed adultery. She broke God's law. So I tell you what, he who has no sin in his life, you go first. You see what he's doing? Just one by one, these Pharisees had to admit what? That they were sinners that through the one man, sin had entered the world, and they were under that as well. That it wasn't just the, you know, the, the, the women caught in adultery, which leads us to ask the question, where was the guy at? Right, that's not even mentioned here. Where's he at? Right, so it's not just the people who are down and out, who are committing the big sins who need grace. We all need it. And so then Paul says, well, if that's the case, well, then why don't we just go headlong into our sinful tendencies and just let the grace abound by no means, and look at what he says, going back to chapter six of Romans. Do you, he says, how can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in what? Newness of life. 
So we go back to verse like 20, where he, 21, where he's talking about the reign of sin. He's saying, listen, when the grace of God comes to you and forgives that sin, now the grace reigns. Where sin used to have control over you, now the grace of God has the control over you. Where the sin in your life used to compel you to, to rebel against God, now the grace of God is compelling you and drawing you towards righteousness. So we go back to this story. In John chapter eight, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the stone at her, verse eight, and once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. And I think if he's right, that's why I think it's the 10 commandments because these guys in their mind were like, I'm a pretty good dude. And then he writes down, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not, right, all these, and I, all of a sudden like, okay, well yeah, I have broken that one. But then look at what happens. But then, verse 9, they heard it. They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Verse 10, he stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, what? Say no more. You see how the, his grace was enough to forgive her most grievous sin, but he was calling her to the newness of life? He wasn't just saying, hey, lady, like, I get it. It's embarrassing, all these people kind of knowing what you did. Tell you what, I don't condemn you, I forgive you. Now go back and do whatever you want. No, his grace compelled her to walk in the newness of life. Go and sin no more. This is really consistent with um, what Paul wrote in the book of Titus to the young pastor. Um, in chapter two of Titus, uh, the apostle Paul is writing about the power of grace. And so what Paul's argument would be, for those who have a flippant view of grace, like God will forgive me, I'll just go do what I want. What Paul would say is, the grace of God never leaves you as it found you. <laughs> that the grace of God is so powerful, it's so abounding that it'll actually transform you, it will move you, it will compel you, it will not leave you as you were, okay? And so in Titus chapter two, he's talking to this young pastor about the power and the transformation that happens through grace. This is what he says, just verse 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared. He's referring to Jesus coming to bring the grace of God bringing salvation for all people. That's good news, right? Remember, the many were made sinners, but the many were made righteous. But then look at what he says. This grace of God does something, verse 12. What does it do? It's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So two things. The grace of God never leaves us as we were. It trains us. It compels us, it moves us towards righteousness, away from ungodliness and towards living in righteousness. So it never leaves you as you are. The second part of that is, is really important. To understand the fullness of God's grace, we have to understand the fullness of our sin. For God's grace to be real in your life, your sin has to also be real. What do I mean by that? So, for, for sin to be real, you've got to be willing to name it. At least between you and Jesus. Not like come to me and name it. 
Now you can come share it with me. I'll pray for you. But that's not what I'm getting at here. You've got to be willing to do more than just say, you know what, I kind of messed up, but everybody messes up. And so, yeah, I'm a sinner because everybody's a sinner, so forgive me. That's watered down generic ownership of sin. For grace to be real, there has to be something real you're being forgiven for, right? You just can't just say, well, everybody falls short. I mean, everybody messes up. So yeah, I need grace. For grace to be real, sin must be real. However, when grace is real, it is powerful and transformative. So if you are not experiencing the transformation of grace in your life, my question for you would be, are you really owning your sin? Are you at least naming it and being honest? Like, I did this. Not watered down, not blaming it on other people. Well, yeah, I did it, but because of, you follow me? Yeah, but if he hadn't done this, like, like no, guilty. Regardless of circumstances, regardless of all the reasons why you feel justified that you did the thing, you did the thing. And when we own that before our Savior, his grace is real, and where sin abounds, the promise is what? His grace will abound all the more. Are you with me? And so listen, if your sin is not real, neither is your Savior. If you have a watered down concept of your sin, a generic ownership of sin, you have not experienced the real grace from a real Savior. Jesus did not die on a cross for all the things that you've done wrong that you blame on somebody else. He died on a cross to forgive you of the things that you did out of your own heart. You with me? He didn't die on a cross to to forgive you of your watered down generic confession of sin. He died to actually forgive you of the real things you've done. That's good news, isn't it? That's great news. Like the worst of the worst. Like imagine this lady. Sure she had done other things wrong, but like caught in the act, drug out into the streets, publicly humiliated. Her sin was real. Right? There was no getting away from it. All she knew is she felt shame, she felt shackled, she felt condemned. And Jesus said what? Where are your accusers? Nobody's here to condemn you? Well, then neither do I condemn you. Go from now on and sin no more. Go from here and be forgiven and walk in a newness of life, set free from the shackles of sin. So, Is John chapter eight consistent with the other teachings of the Bible? Absolutely. Now my next question is, are these words we find in the gospel of John, could they be written by John? And one way we would would answer that question is, does it sound like something else John would write? Did he write this way anywhere else in the Bible? Just a couple things came to mind as I was asking myself that question this week. The first is um, back in John five, where Jesus heals a man and this man had been looking for healing for like 30 years. And he was there at the pool. And Jesus walks up to him. He doesn't know who Jesus is. He's like, hey, man, you want to be healed? And the guy's like, how can I be healed? I can't get myself into the pool to be healed. AKA, I can't heal myself in my own strength. I can't do what's required of me to get the healing. How am I going to get healed if somebody doesn't put me in the pool? And so Jesus asked the question, what? Do you want to be healed? which sounds like an obvious question, but the point is like, are you willing to let go of what you've been thinking is gonna heal you? And are you, allowed, are you willing to consider something else? And the guy's like, yeah, I wanna be healed. So Jesus heals him. What's beautiful about this story is the guy doesn't know who Jesus is and he doesn't even ask. It's totally an act of God's abundant grace, okay? 
And Jesus doesn't even reveal himself in that moment. The, the scripture says that there's such a big crowd, like just blown away by just like, how did that happen? What did you do? That Jesus just fades away into the crowd. And it's not till a few verses later that Jesus has a conversation with him. Listen to what that conversation sounds like. This is in John 5, um, verse 13 and 14. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing wrong, worse may happen to you. Does that sound like Jesus? Does that sound like something John would have written down about Jesus? Absolutely. Jesus is abounding grace to forgive, to heal, and this call to what? To go and to sin no more. It sounds like something John would have written about Jesus, doesn't it? And we go to John chapter three. If you remember, this is the conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus where he comes to Jesus in secret because, and now we know why, right? Because we read chapter seven and all his buddies are like super angry at Jesus and they don't want anybody associating with Jesus because they might get brainwashed. Well, if you go back to John three, Nicodemus comes to Jesus in private like, hey, can we have a conversation? And Jesus engages him in this conversation and they're talking about salvation and being born again. And John three sixteen says what? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We all know that verse, right? Go to the next verse. For God did not send his son into the world to what? Condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus did not come into the world to condemn it. The world was already condemned because sin had already entered the world through one man. He came as one man to enter into the world to rescue it, to make right, to make new. What had been done through Adam, Jesus came into the world to undo it. Condemnation was already here. That's why you got Pharisees trying to kill women caught in adultery and just all the turmoil we see even today. The condemnation's here. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn it. He came into the world to save it from the condemnation. That's why Romans 8.1 says what? There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so now we go back to John 8, right? Where these guys are there and they're condemning the woman. And he says, once again, has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And he said, what? Neither do I condemn you. He didn't come into the world to condemn her. She was already condemned, right? She was already condemned. He came into the world to save her. Like, isn't that good news? Like, I don't know what it is from your past that if you sit and think about it long enough, you'll begin to feel self-condemnation. There's surely there's something. You know that moment that, that you wish you could take back, that you wish you could undo? You know, maybe it's those two or three moments you're like, if I could change anything about my life story, it'd be these moments. Maybe it's something sinful that's so grievous that you don't even want to think about it. And Jesus said, hey, come make eye contact with me. Let's talk about it. Not so that I can condemn you. You're already condemned so that I can save you, so I can forgive you and set you free. And this is what Jesus is talking about with Nicodemus in John chapter three, and it looks like the same thing that's happening in John eight, doesn't it? He didn't come to the world to condemn her. He came to the world to set her free. And so I asked the question, is the teaching of John eight consistent with the rest of the Bible? It seems like it is. Is it consistent with what John would write in capturing the life and the story? It seems pretty consistent, doesn't it? Now, I wouldn't use it as a primary text to develop a new doctrine, 
right? But I would use it as a supplementary text to, to illustrate these great truths of the Bible. So what do you do with these three places where the older manuscripts don't have the verses? Hopefully, hopefully I've helped you today. Hopefully, hopefully you know now what to do with those verses, but more than anything, listen to me, church, hopefully you know what to do with your sin now. Watering down your sin does not lead to freedom. Overgeneralizing your mistakes in life will not lead to being set free. Pretending like all of your mistakes are somebody else's fault will not rescue you from condemnation. You've got to own it before your Savior. Listen, I'll say it again. For your Savior to be real, so too must your sin be. The cross was brutal. You know that, right? It didn't look like this one. It didn't look like this. Like it was, it was bloody and scarred and had claw marks. Like it was ugly. The reason the cross was so brutal is because of the intensity of our sins. Jesus died for real sins. And for him to really be my savior is for me to admit, you know what? I've got some real sin in my life and he is my savior. And here's the second part of that. Somewhere in the late 1900s, we separated the idea of Jesus as savior from Jesus as Lord. That's a mistake. If Jesus is your savior, he's also your Lord. That's why the word reigning is in here. Right? He's, he's an authority for us. He not only forgives you, pours out his abounding grace in your life, but he steps in to be what? Your Lord. I love that she called him that. No one, Lord. No one, master. No one, my king. No one. And so Jesus steps into our life as our king. And that's good news too, right? Where once we felt like we were shackled to, to sin and mistakes and condemnation and all the things we couldn't do, Jesus steps in, listen, let me rule and reign in your life. Let me lead you towards this newness of life, this righteousness of life. Let me pour out abounding grace on you in such a way that it transforms you. The grace of Jesus never does nothing in your life. I'm just telling you, it never does nothing. And to experience the real, genuine, powerful, transformative grace of Jesus means what? We've gotta be willing to have this, this woman caught in adultery moment between us and Jesus. Now, here's the good news. I'm not asking you to come confess your sins to me. We're not going Catholic on this deal, right? No confession booth up here. Nobody's gonna come. I mean, I'll pray for you if you want. I'm happy to do that. But what I'm saying is you don't need my forgiveness. Like this needs to be between, just like this woman, between you and Jesus. You with me? And so like, I wanna leave you with a couple of questions today that I, that I hope are helpful for you. First of all, I want you to think about this. What are those most grievous sins when you think about the story of your life, what are those moments that you'd give anything to take back? I want you to think about that. And then I want you to ask yourself another question. Have I truly brought those things to Jesus? Is there any unconfessed sin in my life? Because your Savior, like, he's not just doing it for the woman in John 8. He's here right now saying, bring that to me. I want to forget. I want to set you free. But you've got to bring it to me. So if there's any unconfessed sin in your life, my encouragement to you is bring that to your Savior today. Bring it before Jesus. Bring it before the throne of grace with, with confidence and allow him to pour out his abounding grace on you in such a way that it transforms you and calls you to walk in a newness of life. And that, that's my hope for you today. I'm gonna pray for you and the band is gonna come back up. 
Um, if there's anything going on in your life right now, you just don't think that singing is the thing to do, you can stay seated. Like if maybe you're praying or you're just contemplating some things, I want you to feel free to do that. As the band leads us in singing, I want you to think about what God is speaking to you today and what that next step might be for you. As always, um, our pastors will be down front. We'll just be over in this area at the end of the service. If you want us to pray over something or talk about something, please come grab us, okay? So we're gonna pray now and then we're gonna get ready to respond. Father, we thank you for this powerful message from John 8. God, we admit that we're not super sure, God, on if, if those passages were written by John um, and, and if they belong right there in the gospel. But nevertheless, Father, what's so powerful is that these verses point us to other places in the Bible that teach and preach a consistent message. That yes, our sin is grievous. Yes, our sin warrants death. Yes, our sin renders us condemned. But we're so thankful that the message of the Bible is that Jesus has come into the world to undo that condemnation, to set prisoners free, to bring forgiveness where there is guilt. And Father, we're so thankful that when you forgive us, you don't leave us as we were, but you transform us into something new. So now as we, each one of us thinks about, maybe contemplates, our most grievous, sinful moments in life. I pray right now that we would encounter the grace of Jesus in an abounding way. That Father, you truly would set captives free today. That anybody who is here today who has not experienced that transformative, abounding grace would experience it before they leave here today to walk in this newness of life that you promise. The Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit to come and to move through this room and to move in our hearts to guide us and direct us as we respond to your word. We pray it all in Jesus, in your powerful name. Amen.